Hey there, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a new episode. Yes, can you believe it? A new episode at last, at long last, finally. It has been promised to you for quite some time. It is here finally. Part one of a two-part interview with the great Brian Walker. Yes, Brian Walker, the great comics historian and curator, great cartoonist in his own right, uh, son of Mort Walker, writer for High and Lois and Beetle Bailey, and by golly, I could just go on and on. There's so many things that Brian Walker has been involved in in the world of comics, so it is really exciting to have him here. It is really exciting just to listen to the interview. I just (laughs) listened to it again. It's just, it's great. Brian has so many stories to tell, and he's, he's been involved on so many levels in comics in the last 40, 50 years. It's just there's so much to talk about. Not the least of which is the fact that he's uh, part of one of the most famous families in comics, the Walker family, and almost everyone in the family, I think, is involved in Mort Walker's business, one way or the other. For that, we owe Mort Walker a great deal of gratitude. Yes, indeed. So, uh, before we get to that, I guess I'll just tell you a little bit about what I've been doing. I've been, uh, I have not been completely remiss <laughs> in my duties as a blockhead host, a podcast host. I've been really busy. Uh, the COVID thing has resulted in a big, a heavy lift, if you will, of courses that were once taught uh, face-to-face now moving online and that sounds so much easier than it is it's not all zoom meetings and uh, those kinds of things Um, in fact most of what I do is not and so there's a lot of recording editing PowerPoint putting together uh, demonstration creating you name it there's a lot of stuff involved so it has eaten up an enormous amount of my time and much more than I could have ever imagined and I just have not been able to to get to this uh, until now. So, and even now I'm, I'm pushing aside work that I, I had kind of a deadline for in order to get this out there, but I felt like, hey, this was long promised and it meant a lot to me and Brian has waited long enough and so have you. So, uh, you know, here it is. Anyway, I'll talk to you more at the end. I know you're looking forward to this and believe me, it does not disappoint. This is part one of a two-part interview with the great Brian Walker. How many times can I say that? It's, but every time it's, you know, it's true. It's really true. So this is a real, real special thing. So here we go. Brian Walker and myself in conversation. Yeah, the reason I was asking you about the video is because I've, I've got like, you know, COVID hair. You know, my hair is like uh, <laughs> almost put in a ponytail now. So I look oh, like a, a wild man. <laughs> well, you know, I had um, uh, Lynn Johnston was on a while ago, and she said, "Well, this is great. I can do the interview in my PJs." Uh-huh. So, you know, I mean, there are some benefits to audio only. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, welcome, Brian, to Blockhead. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. This is a thrill for me. I'm I'm so excited because you are a, a not only an embodiment of the the history of comics can, and and one of the first families of comics if that's if that is a thing, uh, but also a, a great historian in your own right. So there's so much to talk about. I, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure you recall this, but I met you in 2012 at the Billy Ireland Museum, which was just opening up its new facility. And uh, there was a big party. I can't remember exactly what, I think that's what the, the event was about. It was the opening of the museum. Right. And uh, 2013, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was 2013. That's right. Yeah. Um, I actually curated the opening exhibit there. That's right. As a matter of fact, I remember sort of trailing around after you and a group of people who were there, uh, you know, for an appointment to walk through the exhibition with you. I sort yeah, of snuck out to that. Yeah, I had to do two of those that day because it was, you know, you, you only have so many people that can hear you and then they start talking in the background. And uh, the gallery tours are always um, a little challenging, but uh, it's fun to do, actually. Yeah, and, and, and it seemed like a lot of fun, but it was also uh, pretty cool to watch you talk about, you know, the work that was on the wall. And that 
opening, uh, which was kind of a monumental event, was really a signature event for you, right? The culmination of a year's worth of work uh, with both your dad and and yourself uh, on the museum. Yes. You know, it was, um, it's kind of an ongoing journey, to tell you the truth. It's, that started in, uh, you know, right after I got out of college in 1974. It's hard to believe that was almost 40 years ago, but no, more than 40. Almost, almost 50. 50. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can speak, you know, as you said before, I, I have a kind of unique background in that, of course, I'm the son of a well-known cartoonist, and I grew up with a kind of an extended family of cartoonists, so there's a personal kind of family connection. And then, of course, the... Uh, working at the Museum of Cartoon Art over the years and doing books and exhibits and everything. That's another aspect of my career. And then, of course, uh, working as a professional cartoonist on two syndicated comic strips. So, you know, I don't know anybody else that has quite that um, background and resume. I think and whenever you're alone in that. Talk to somebody and say, you know, I, I maybe I need to, you need to clarify which... Uh, Brian Walker, you're talking to, or which hat I'm supposed to wear at any given point. I mean, I did a, an interview back in the, about 2005, I think it was, when I did the, I was the curator of the Masters of American Comics exhibit, which opened in LA and it traveled across the country, and probably one of the more high-profile exhibits I ever or worked on. And they set up an interview with Terry Gross and Fresh Air. Mm-hmm. They They were like, the publicity department was, you know, head over heels excited about like oh my god this is so huge you know and uh terry gross gets me on immediately says what was it like growing up in a household with a cartoon working cartoonist <laughs> you know for half the interview it was about my personal life and i felt like i i did wasn't doing my job in promoting <laughs> the exhibit enough but it wasn't my fault i mean you can't tell terry gross to you know no subject or anything <laughs> uh, you can still listen to that on itunes i think oh i, I will definitely search yeah. that out i you know uh I, I love terry gross and i'm certain it's, it's a great interview because she's just you know the 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 dean or the yeah. grand dame of of radio interviewers yeah, i mean what a voice you know i had this uh i was in a uh NPR station in Connecticut on my way up to go skiing. It was like day after Christmas or something. And I put these things on and her voice comes in. Okay, well, just relax. I've done my homework. It's going to go easy. And I felt like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> I was talking to my shrink or something, you know. Hey, that's great, though. It's, 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 that's the best way to get, you know, the best results from an interview is just to put somebody at ease. Yeah. And uh, get into a conversation. <laughs> so you wear multiple hats, but um, and we'll probably hopefully we get to talk to all of those guys in this interview today, uh, because I'm I'm so interested in pretty much everything you do, uh, because there's there's just so much there. Um, but just continuing to talk about the the museum uh, for a little bit. So you started work on that in 1974, but not out of a. a like a background in history or anything, or as an art historian or anything, you started off by, you know, your dad asked you to paint the walls, right? Right. I was a house painter. That was my original <laughs> qualification. And, and he had grew- this uh, old mansion around the corner from our home in Greenwich, Connecticut, and said, do you think you could get some of your buddies and clean this place up? You know, uh, I had actually done like an independent study in college on comic art, you know, ah. it was- Comics as a communicative art form. Okay. And it was kind of an independent study. And I'd interviewed Gary Trudeau and Dick Brown and John Cullen Murphy and gone through some of my father's history books and stuff. And I, so I was just beginning to kind of look at comics a little more seriously because, you know, I'd grown up with, uh, you know, original strips hanging in the walls of our home and in, you know, in the den and up in my father's studio. And these guys would come by the house and, I just sort of took it for granted. I didn't think about it too much. Um, but after we finished cleaning this mansion up, I thought, well, now we got to put up some exhibits. <laughs> and I was, I don't know anything about exhibits. I've never worked in a gallery or museum or anything. And we just, and, and looking back on it, it might not have been the worst thing because we were 
doing something no one had ever done before, which was create a museum for cartoon art. And so we weren't, you know, all hampered with, you know, museum regulations and things. We kind of just did it on our own. We probably made a lot of mistakes. Uh, so we just kind of invented it over the years. And, um, you know, it was an exciting time. Three years in 1977, we moved into what was called the Ward Castle in Rybrook. And to me, those were the most exciting years of the museum's history. Uh, this this funky old castle built in 1870 out of reinforced concrete. And we bought the building for $70,000 and fixed it up and uh, started doing exhibits there. And throughout the 1980s, we did just a series of blockbuster exhibits on the art of Windsor McKay and George Harriman. And uh, we did a lot of exhibits that tied in with movies like Batman and Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie. All those movies were coming out in those days. And, uh, you know, in the early 90s, my father got the idea. He was remarried mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were sort of more ambitious plans for the museum. They wanted to turn it into a world class institution and they went looking around and they end up in Boca. They ended up in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, with a plot of land down there and, uh, there was no museum. And I told my father, I said, I really don't want to move to Florida. My kids are in school uh, in Connecticut. Uh, there's no museum to do any exhibits in anyway at that point. And uh, so I kind of split off in my own direction and uh, started doing exhibits at other museums and doing oh. books and other things like that. It took a little while to get that off the ground, but by the early 2000s, I was... Uh, just completely swamped with with projects and you know book projects and exhibits and um you became kind of an independent curator uh, and and expert historian in a way free yeah yeah i i think that uh certainly over the years i've done over i think about 75 exhibitions wow but I'd done all those exhibits at the museum. I did a, a one after the museum moved at the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, which was a huge, you know, 100 years of comics retrospective. And then I did another version of that exhibit in Brussels in Belgium. Oh. Uh, but I think the one of the big opportunities that came my way was in 2001, uh, Jay Kennedy, who was the comics editor at King Features. In fact, he was our comics editor called and said, uh, I met this guy, he's the editor-in-chief at Abrams, and they want to do a book on comic history. Are you interested? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up doing the, the book for Abrams, uh, the comics since 1945, and then ended up doing a second volume. We kind of did it like Star Wars, like backwards, yeah. comics before 1945. And I think those two books together, which were ultimately published as a single volume, sort of uh kind of put the seal of approval on my career as a historian i think it was uh you know when you do a book like that with a major art publisher like abrams i think people notice oh, yeah I, and that book is uh, uh i've used that book as a textbook in a history of comics class i teach at adelphi university in garden city and a uh, fabulous book absolutely fabulous book um it really covers so much territory and really so in depth. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great achievement. Uh, it's it, for comics, particularly for comic strips, right? It's it's the, uh, I mean, the only kind of comparison I can make is to H.W. Jansen's History of Art for, you know, the, the whole history of art, which is fantastic. It's, it's a yeah. really great resource, a great book. Yeah, I appreciate and, that. Um, you know, when I started that book, I was like, this is an incredible opportunity to do a major book for, you know, a, probably one of the best art publishers in the world, Abrams. And so I really took the challenge seriously. In fact, after it was, each of those books was basically a two year project. So I spent total almost five years on it. Mm -hmm. And um, what I did first is, you know, because I have an incredible respect for the people that came before me. 
many of whom were personal friends like Bill Blackbeard and Rick Marshall and Ron Goulart and R.C. Harvey. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have all their books and I really studied them. And I said, you know, what's the strength and the weakness of each one of these books and how can I do it better? You know, how, how can I improve on what's come before me? And I think one of the biggest things I noticed is the reproduction quality in a lot of those books is not very good. And, That's a big point. And I really, really worked hard to get the best quality. Uh, and back in those days, a lot of it were they were four by five transparencies that I got from everything from the Library of Congress and uh, Illustration House, which is an auction house. And uh, I remember talking with Art Spiegelman and he said, well, why are you bothering to reproduce everything from original art for the most part? Not everything, but. He said, you know, you can just go to the newsprint copies and, and, you know, that have just as good an example. I said, but it's not going to look as good, you know. And my background working on exhibits with original artwork, I have just this incredible respect for the actual original that was drawn by the cartoonist by hand. And to see these things in a museum or in a, in a gallery, they're so beautiful to look at. And they're so much larger for the most part that I wanted to to start with that, you know, as a source material and then reproduce the highest quality I could. And I think we did, you know, I mean, Abrams is the kind of company that will follow through and color correct and, you know, back and forth. There was a lot of editing that went on and, and uh, reshooting of things. And, uh, you know, a lot of, and, you know, so somebody wrote a review, like, of course, Abrams has done the, all their usual quality job, but they could only do, as good quality as the source material that I gave them. Uh, right. So to me, it was, it, it was almost like th there was a, a point in, in while I was working on the book, the Whitney museum did a centennial exhibit of American art that was in two parts. And it took up the whole museum. And I said, so, and there was a catalog and I said, so I want this, book of mine to be the catalog of an exhibit that would be at the Metropolitan Museum or something someday, you know, and that's kind of the approach I took to it. And it, it definitely comes across that way. I mean, it really is. At this point, I think your book, for me anyway, I don't know of anything that's come out since, but your book, the collected edition is really the source. It, that is the, that is the source, the benchmark edition or volume volume about the history of the comic strip in yeah. the united states particularly uh and and the images that's that's one of the big reasons that i chose to use that one over a variety of others uh when i was teaching my course was because the work was just so beautiful and uh so and the writing is great too so uh you know it's a, all together it's a really wonderful package um there are a couple things that that crossed my mind you know uh as you were talking and i was thinking about when you know you, you were talking about early on in the history of the museum putting together an exhibition is a really daunting task and particularly like i know your dad had a collection of comic art but it must have been really difficult to call together, you know, all of these Windsor McKay's or, or whomever, you know, you were doing an exhibition about particularly like in the seventies and eighties versus today. I think it's more the collecting of comic art is more visible anyway. Um, there's a, a it seems to be a bigger market for it. And so you might be able to find the provenance and find who owns what and, and track them down. I don't really know the circumstances, but back in the day, it must have been kind of daunting, I would think, to find all of that work and bring it together in one place. Yeah, sort of like detective work. <laughs> I mean, still to this day, you know, it's sort of six degrees of separation. You know, you you're like, what What happened to this collector that I used to know who died and, and uh, used to have like 200 peanut strips? And what happened to that? You know, it was auctioned after he died. And I, I tracked this. This was for the 50 years of peanuts exhibit I did at the museum in Florida. I tracked down this art dealer, Robert Casterline, <laughs> who had the, a gallery and I think in Aspen and another one in Myrtle Beach or something. And he had all this stuff. And he, he basically... Most of that ended up at the Schultz Museum. Uh -huh. But, you know, it's just, I, I wrote an essay for one of the uh, Billy Ireland catalogs about sort of a history of the museum programs and exhibits. And um, exhibits sometimes were 
you know, based upon the source material. Mm-hmm. Like Winsor McKay, uh, we knew a guy named Ray Moniz, who was Winsor McKay's grandson, that wow. was the curator of the West Point Museum. What? And he would come down every year and swap out the Winsor McKay that we had in our Hall of Fame. So when I did that exhibit, we borrowed pretty much everything from him. I went up to his house and I looked through trunkfuls of Winsor McKay political cartoons, uh, oh probably about 30 or 35 original pages. Oh, my gosh. That oh family was very uh, sort of gun shy with, with collectors and people coming in there. And because of my years of knowing Ray Moniz and, and having him come to the museum, he trusted me. So when we did the Masters of American Comics, of course, Winsor McKay was, you know, the original master and the opening gallery was was all Little Nemo pages and the, almost all of them were from that the family. Oh. Uh, but then there's there are collectors who specialize like, you know, uh, I don't, you know, there's one guy who was the Dick Matt Masterson. He was the Dick Tracy guy. You know, he had oh. all the best examples and <laughs> every villain represented in his collection and oh, there was a superman guy and a, and you know um and then there were collectors like murray harris that started cl- sending letters to cartoonists back in the 1930s oh, he had yeah. a prince valiant page from 1939 that prince uh, that hal foster had sent him in 1939 and he'd have it had it ever since oh my gosh and Murray had a big collection of Uncle Sam cartoons, you know, okay. political cartoons with Uncle Sam. So we did an Uncle Sam exhibit. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it was just contacts and connections, sort of a, you know, even to this day, I have this sort of web of, of people that I know that are resource people. They're very generous when loaning for museum collections. Um, I just did a, a Probably one of the more important exhibits I've ever curated was a George Harriman exhibit mm-hmm. at the uh, Museum of Reina Sofia in Madrid, oh. uh, which is one of the biggest uh, modern art museums in the world. You know, that's where Picasso's Guernica lives now. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Down the hall, we had a whole huge four, five galleries of, of Harriman, Crazy Cat. We had and about Picasso two. loved Harriman. What's that? I said Picasso loved Harriman, too. Yeah. Picasso and Brock both loved Harriman. There are little notes in, in, uh, between the two of them uh, talking about Harriman's crazy cat. It's, yeah. That's kind of a neat connection. Yeah. And there was the, that, uh, the, the head of the museum, who lived in New York for a number of years, decided he wanted to do a comic art exhibit, and he thought the Harriman was the likely choice for a one-man show. And they called up the Billy Ireland. They talked to Jenny Robb. Jenny called me, said, maybe you should get in touch with these guys. And one thing led to another. And it was just an incredible opportunity for me to, to do an exhibit in a very uh, high-profile museum like that. Uh, but the challenge with the Harriman stuff is there's one guy that has a huge collection of original crazy cats who is very uncooperative. <laughs> I won't, won't name his name. But he just, he, he, you know, he just refused to help. So there's a lot of collectors that have one Harriman piece. You know, this uh-huh. is my crazy cat. <laughs> it's usually the, the pride of their collection. Sure. Yeah. So I had to go around to collectors in Italy and Spain and, and Germany and England and, you know, all around the United States. And, you know, at some point they said, you know, we don't have the budget to pick up 80 different pieces at 80 different locations. So uh, I ended up borrowing over a dozen pages from Gary Trudeau. Oh, wow. Gary Trudeau? (laughs) Yeah, some really nice ones that he bought from the Graham Gallery back in the 1980s. He said it was the best investment he'd ever made. Yeah. Buy one for, you know, like eight or $900 or something that worth 30, 40, 50 grand now. Yeah, yeah. It's happening with all, uh, uh, almost all comics are, right? I mean, yeah, well, I, not all, but I mean, you know, crazy cats are blue chip. Well, you know, yeah. Question. Yeah. So it is, it is kind of each exhibit is a challenge. It's a different challenge. Sometimes there's what I call one stop shopping where everything 
you one is in one place and other times you have to go all over the place looking for things like that so do do you ever think you'll get tired of the enormous amount of work that goes into putting together exhibitions uh not really i really enjoy you know once again uh i would say about 60 percent of my time is spent uh working on the comic strips Mm -hmm. writing i write uh you know about you know, two thirds of the gags for High and Lois, uh-huh. and about a, maybe a quarter and half of the gags of Rubito Bailey. Yeah, and that's you know, like for most professional cartoonists, it's solitary work. I have yeah. a stu- studio, not in my house. It's about seven miles away, which is where I am now. So that's you know, I'm by my. I don't really mind working by myself. In fact, I like working by myself. But occasionally. You want to get out and talk to real people instead of <laughs> <imaginary> people. <laughs> yeah. So I get to go out to the Billy Ireland and work with those wonderful people out there. And we go out to dinner and we have an opening and some cartoonists come. And, you know, it's 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 really, you know, it's like a paid vacation almost. Yeah, that's great. Uh, when I did the exhibit in Madrid, my wife and I flew over, spent 10 days in Madrid. Oh, great. Yeah. And every day I go over to the museum and work pretty hard during the day. And then I meet her and we walk around and got late dinner and it was wonderful, you know? Oh yeah, sure. It sounds great. Uh, and, and it is, ex- it's, it's gratifying. It's exciting. You're also, you know, maintaining the visibility, the history, you know, yeah. for people to see and, and putting together, these are important exhibitions, exhibitions like, you know, they can change lives. I know it sounds ridiculous, but when you go into a museum and you're a kid and you're 14 years old, and you're wondering what to do with your life and you like to draw and then you see a George Harriman up on the wall and a whole host of them and how it all comes together it just blows your mind and it it makes a big difference and you know also I think raising the imprimatur if you will of the the work uh, over the course of the last 50 years you know the respectability of comics has just grown exponentially since you know, the 1970s. And, uh, uh, you know, thank, uh, you know, thank goodness, because uh, it's long deserving of the same kind of attention and, um, and accolades as any other art form. And it's got a uh, long way to go. I think, you know, uh, I I would like to see one of the big major, you know, Museum of Modern Art of the Whitney or the Museum of Modern Art of the Metropolitan do a major comic art show and do it right. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's you know, back to what you said earlier, a, f- a friend of mine who's now became a friend, Michael Tizeran, who wrote, wrote the wonderful biography of George Harriman, Crazy Cat, was inspired to do that book when he went to go see the Masters of American Comics exhibit yeah. at the Milwaukee Art Museum back around 2006, I think it was. And he just... Oh got so excited by seeing Harriman's artwork that he decided he, of course he lives in new Orleans. So there's a local connection there too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. He's a new Orleans historian, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Music writer originally, Uh Uh, but it was the, there was an exhibit back in the early nineties. I think it was uh, at the museum of modern art called high and low. Yes. I remember that. And you can imagine where comics was on that spectrum. And, and it, a lot of the people in the comics world, including myself, were really angry about the way they the sort of disrespected comics in, in that exhibit and the way that they were displayed as a sort of a secondary thing that, you know, say, I mean, there, there was like a romance comic, you know, cheap. Mm-hmm. In a, in a little glass case and then a big, huge Roy Lichtenstein painting or something. Right. And Art Spiegelman went in there and got so angry that he wrote a scathing review of it in uh, art, one of the art magazines. And then he gathered together a bunch of curators at his studio in Soho and said, this is the way a, a legitimate, respectable comic art exhibit could be done. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the people at that, meeting was Annie Philbin, who eventually became the director of the Hammer Museum in LA. And that's how the whole Masters of American Comics exhibit 
came to be. It, it took 10 years for that to get off the ground and actually happen. But it was all a response to, you know, the Museum of Modern Art show. Yeah, that's really interesting how that grew out of that. Uh, and out of, you know, sometimes out of bad things come really good things. And uh, and out of our foibles come positive results sometimes. Yeah. That's a great, that was a great exhibition, the Masters of American Comic Art. I saw that at the Jewish Museum, I think, yeah. in New York, uh, back when it was out. And, you know, I went several times. I mean, I just loved it. I, I yeah. thought it was fantastic. There was, you know, such so much material to take in and so many great pieces and uh, so many great artists to draw from. It was just really mind-blowing. Terrific. And I, I've got Did the Did you see the other half of the museum? The other half of the exhibit was at the Newark Museum. Oh, you know, I wasn't able to get to that. You know, at the time I didn't have, I wasn't traveling. I didn't have a car. So I was, yeah. was kind of uh, tied down to Manhattan and Brooklyn. But uh, so I didn't get around to seeing that. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that too, because yeah. it added, you know, a whole nother dimension, you know. To, yeah. Well, yeah. that, that uh, you know, it, when it was in LA, the Hammer Museum had the first half of the exhibit, which was Winsor McKay to Charles Schultz. And then the second half was at the, the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A., which was uh, basically uh, Will Eisner to Gary Panther, I guess you say. Yeah. And in, and then when I went to Milwaukee, they, they combined it all in one museum, the Milwaukee Art Museum, which is an amazing place, uh, designed by Santiago Calatrava, oh. who d designed the Transportation Center in Manhattan. Okay. And, uh, and then when it came to New York, it originally was supposed to go to the Whitney. Uh -huh. but that didn't happen for one reason or another. And so it got split between the Newark Museum and the Jewish Museum. And Art Spiegelman got so angry that mm -hmm. he pulled his art out of the show. Long story, I, but... <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, so the Jewish Museum exhibit was a little bit compromised, Um by that yeah well you know and that, I, I felt at the time too uh i mean no no uh slight on the jewish museum but i felt like that that was an exhibition too i was kind of disappointed that it was split up into two and i thought you know the whitney is an obvious place for yeah. for that and uh you know it's really kind of i don't know these boundaries that people draw um i don't know where they come from but comics have had a long it's been a long struggle you know for respectability yeah. and um we're still we're still fighting for it right yeah uh, no. and, you know, what's in europe they, they they don't seem to see, see the distinction yeah. between high and low art to them comic art is just as important you know harriman is just as important as picasso you know yeah. no yeah. they don't see they're working in different mediums and, and different businesses and everything, but, but it's still art. You know, they, they don't make those distinctions the way they do in this country. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct reward. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Well, I think some of that goes back to the idea that comics in this country that, that somehow or another there became this definition or this idea that comics were for kids and yeah. and it was children's literature and that that uh attitude that viewpoint has really stuck and it's been all of these years later even with the advent of graphic novels and etc uh, etc et it's still something that we battle against that comics are not just for kids and in fact you know, I don't know if it's the majority of them, but most of them are written with adults in mind as, as yeah. well as, you know, kids. So I don't know why that that is still stuck, but it is still something we're fighting against in this country. And they, they never had that attitude in Europe or in Japan or elsewhere uh, where comics are revered. And um, yeah. it's, you know, it's the, one of those funny things about the West and about the United States that, that uh, we've been trying to 
it's like beating your head against a wall. Every time you say that comics are, it's like a new thing. You know, the media picks up this idea. Oh, comics are not just for kids anymore. And, and, uh, that's been the case for, you know, however long, you know, as comics yeah. have been around. So and even when I, when I did the masters of American comics, I did a lot of interviews and oftentimes it started off, but, but why comics in a in a, in a fine art museum? You know, why, why would you do that or something, you know? Or, or even then, this, this is the first time that comics have ever been exhibited in a museum. And I say, no, that's not true either, you know. It's just, it was just somehow they couldn't get their head around it, you know. And, it is, you know, you know, I did press conference in Madrid. And, you know, they, you know, they had a Spanish translator. And the questions they, they answered, what they asked, were just so sophisticated. And, and uh, you know, they weren't at all like they were so far beyond that question. Yeah, you know, I think the the idea, you know, the comics, the comics are in some ways a hybrid art form, which I think in some ways, again, in this country, we have a problem with the idea of mixed media and, you know, uh, an art form that, that it utilizes both verbal and visual skills. It's really hard for, for at least the way museums are defined and galleries are defined and art is defined here to get our mind around that. But the the skills that are required in order to do any form of comics well, whether it's short or long form, are are monumental. You know, they're huge. You have to be able to visualize. You have to be able to pace. You have to be able to time it out. You have to be able to write, and you have to be able to edit that writing. And uh, it, you know, it just blows my mind that one of the things that is always kind of a surprise to students who take comics classes is when you really start to get into it it's really difficult it takes a lot of different skills to be working at relatively high levels to make good comics and uh, i think that's something that people just don't have a grasp on yeah and i i think that it the the potential for communication is so great i mean there's people can do you know, you can have a comic strip like Nancy by Ernie Bushmiller, which oh, yeah. is on the surface is very simplistic, you know, mm -hmm. you can have something as sophisticated as, say, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, you know, and everything in between. You know, you can have Prince Valiant, and you can have Beetle Bailey and you can have, you know, Superman, mm -hmm. Batman and, and you know, that the, the, the potential for creativity is almost limitless, really. It is. And uh, by the way, you mentioned Nancy. Have you read that book, Reading Nancy? Uh, you mean Mark Newgarden and Paul Karasik's book? Yeah, uh, yeah. The How whole... to Read Nancy. Yeah. But that's an interesting story in, in that um, in the late 80s, I had done some books with uh, Henry Holt, Holt Reinhardt and Winston, publisher. Mm-hmm. And my editor, David Stanford, called me up and said, so United Feature wants to do a book of Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy, which I think they probably wanted to do it for copyright reasons or something. Yeah. And he's, and he's and David said, and I recommended you to do it. And I said, why? I hate Nancy. Nancy's stupid, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's just for like little kids and grandparents <laughs> or something. And he said, exactly. That's why I want you to do it. And so I went on this incredible journey of talking to people uh, like Michael Frith, who was the artistic director for Henson Associates, who had Nancy originals all over his office walls. Oh, my God. Uh, Bill Griffith Zippy, who, oh, yeah. uh, who's actually right now doing a graphic biography of Ernie Bushmiller. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and. And Dennis Kitchen, who is the founder of the Bushmiller Society, which we're all members of, there we have pins and membership cards, and <laughs> uh, and it's just in you know Tom Gamble, who has the Ernie Bushmiller Cartoon Library and Museum out in California, uh, and it's just grown into this, uh, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, you know, uh, yeah. in that, you know, with so when I did that book, I asked. Uh, Mark and Paul were, uh, you know, working with Raw Magazine at the time. So they were, I would say, alternative cartoonists. Right. And we met in like a, I think it was a Thai restaurant in Greenwich Village and sat and talked about Nancy for like three hours. <laughs> and David Stanford, the edit, my editor, was recording it. He called me the next day. He says, you're going to kill me. And I said, what? He says, I, I pushed the wrong button. I got nothing. Oh, no. 
none of it was recorded. Oh, no. Oh, my God, we were so brilliant. (laughs) I went back to Mark and Paul and I said, so could you put that into like maybe an essay or something? Uh, So they had a a six, I think it was six pages in my The Best of Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy, which was published around 1990. And it just evolved into this. People talked about it and republished it. And not, I mean, that particular article from my book. And then probably it was like 10 years ago, they called Mark and Paul called up and said, so we're going to do an entire book for Fantagraphics on how to read Nancy. And I said, Oh my God, God bless you guys. (laughs) (laughs) They spent years working on that. And it's just sort of like, uh, I mean, I'm, I imagine some people think of it as sort of an exercise in futility or <laughs> or, or uh, excess or whatever. But I, it's you look at it, it's just a brilliant book, I think. It's a brilliant book. It's and it's fascinating. And I'll tell you, you know, it is it is a textbook for how to, you know, uh, deconstruct and how to reconstruct comics. I mean, if you want to, you know, really find the nuts and bolts of what goes into this art form, boy, that, that book just lays it all out. And it really makes the case for Ernie Bushmiller as an absolute master of the comics art form or the comic strip art form. And, uh, it's just, it, it's a fabulous book and I, I loved it. Although I hesitate to, you know, have my students read it because I'm, I'm not sure they'd get through it, but, yeah. uh, you know, you really have to be well, obsessive to get into I it. Recommend my book. I think I don't know if you can still get it, but sure. Um, yeah, you know, just to, as a, a an add-on to that, uh, about uh, about a year or so after I did the book, um, I was still working. It was sort of like the twilight years of the museum and the war castle, and somebody said, "Well, why don't you do the a Nancy exhibit?" at the museum. And I said, well, I don't want to make it look like I'm promoting my other outside projects or my book. And I said, oh, come on, this will be great. So I think it was really probably the last great exhibit we did in the Warren Castle in 1990. And uh, a guy who, Jim Carlson, who was a big help to me on the book, who actually was a neighbor of Ernie Bushmiller's and had a lot of Bushmiller's original art and sketchbooks and letters and photographs and everything. And he gave us money and we fixed up the second floor and we put a new carpeting and lighting and everything. And that night we had an opening at the museum that was attended by a mixture of uh, some of Bushmiller's family, which were kind of a bunch of old grannies from Long Island. <laughs> a lot of the downtown art guys, you know, including Mark Newgarden and Paul Karasik and Art Spiegelman and Justin Green was there and Bill Griffith. And and then there are all the Connecticut cartoonists like my father and Jerry Dumas and Stan Drake. And, uh-huh. and it was just, I think it was the best opening we ever had at the museum. It was oh, just fantastic. a fun night and everybody was enjoying the exhibit. And the poster that Dennis Kitchen did for that exhibit is hanging on my wall right to my left here. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful poster that was uh, designed by Pete Poplaski of Nancy in, in an art gallery looking at art. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really great, man. It's And, uh, you know, what a great opportunity to bring all of these disparate cartoonists together under one roof. Uh, you know, I mean, there's when it comes to loving comics, there's no boundaries there or definitions that divide people alternative or mainstream. Yeah. It doesn't really yeah. matter. Right? Great to turn around and see, you know, you know, some of these downtown art guys talking with Ernie Bushmiller's, you know, great aunt or something. I don't know. You know? Uh, but, you know, it that, that it illustrates a little bit of how these different parts of my career are kind of sometimes overlap and intersect because it, it's all relating to cartoon art and whether it's, you know, producing the comic strips, Beetle Bailey and High and Lois, or doing a book or an exhibit or working at a museum or whatever. To me, it's it's all part of the same uh, ball of wax or whatever. Is, is, you know, it makes me wonder then, is this the kind of life you imagined for yourself when you were like a teenager and beginning to imagine a future for 
for Brian Walker, what life would be like or what career you might have? I know you're, you studied something entirely different in college. I think it was African studies or something yeah. of that nature, but was getting involved in your father's business, something that was in the back of your mind or was it, uh, just came naturally over the course of the years? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I think because when I was in school and junior high school, high school, people knew my connection with my father. So, you know, I drew cartoons for the school newspaper and did posters and always had kind of my own little comic strip projects on the side and stuff. But, you know, I was a child of the 60s, so I was rebelling against my father, who was, you know, as an ex-military man, he was sort of pretty conservative. He voted for Richard Nixon. And, you know, I was a flag waving radical hippie. You know, I went to Woodstock mm -hmm. and, you know, I was in the SDS and did civil disobedience <laughs> demonstrations <laughs> against the Vietnam War. And my passion was traveling. After my sophomore year in college, I was 20 years old and I took off with two buddies and spent about 10 months in Africa. And <clears throat> Don't get me started, but I mean, we, we, I mean, we started in Europe. We spent three months in Morocco. My friend got thrown in jail. Uh, we drove across the Sahara. You know, we went through West Africa, oh then we went God. to East Africa. At one point, we cl we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We ran around in the Gombe Stream Reserve with wild chimpanzees. You know, where Jane Goodall's place is. Oh yeah. We sailed oh. in the Indian Ocean in a dhow, and you know. Uh, one of these days, I want to write a book about it. That's one of my unfulfilled projects in life. Wow, and I man. came back from that, and uh, I was just like, "Now what?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's going to the like going to the moon and coming back. Yeah, it's like the, after the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. And uh, but you know, I I continue to travel and still do. Um, you know, I my wife and I have traveled to back to East Africa on our honeymoon to Kenya and to Australia and New Zealand and Mexico and Hawaii and Costa Rica. Uh, so I, you know, I've always loved to travel. And I think, you know, when I was that age and thinking about what I was going to do with the rest of my life, I was off in the middle of the Sahara somewhere. Really. Yeah. Thinking about that, thinking about, you know, all the places in the world you wanted to go to yeah. rather than working in a studio five six seven days a week on a on a syndicated comic strip but that's what you're you're doing now um your dad has passed away uh in 2018 right and um and now it's really left to you and your brother uh greg and um i don't know who else you have working with you on beetle bailey and high and lois uh these days but um that, uh, my brother neil i should say is now working with us on beetle bailey Okay. And, so uh, it, I was just going to say, it must be, is it, I mean, with your dad having passed, it, it must be different working on the strip, on the strips rather, um, without him around. Is that, did things change a lot, you know, after? No, uh, not, not so much really. I think, uh, you know, my brother Greg started working with originally on comic books that were published by, was it Charlton that used to do the Beetle Bailey comic books? I think he did Sarge or something. And uh, he, he started a little earlier than I did, um, probably late seventies working and helping my father. And then uh, I actually worked at the museum for almost 10 years before I started working on, in, on the comic strips. Oh, wow. Uh, in the early eighties, my father sold a, a an idea to King Features Syndicate teaming uh, Betty Boop and Felix the Cat up together in the same strip. I've and, heard about that, and, but I've never seen it. And he got us, uh, actually, there were, there were uh, four brothers, uh, my brother, older brother Greg, myself, uh, my brother Morgan, and bro brother Neil. And we, we all worked on the Betty Boop strip for about three years. Uh, it was one of those things that sounded like a good idea. I'm not sure how well it worked. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the King Features ever had a lot of confidence in him, in it. Uh, they 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 had some internal problems. They they got rid of their East Coast salesman right as the strip launched, so it never had many East Coast papers. The salesman in California was really enthusiastic, so most of our papers were out there. Mm -hmm. 
But I think at some point my father said, hey, you know, you're getting pretty good at writing, coming up with gags. You know, what, what we call gags are little the sketches, the storyboards, ideas. And my father has this system where he's got a team of writers. They're dedicated writers. We don't we don't buy stuff through the mail or anything. They're either family members or people like Jerry Dumas with, mm-hmm. who worked with my father for like 60 years. And uh, we each come in with a quota of gags and we, we write about three times more than we use. And uh, we have a simple grading system. It's either a one or a two. <laughs> and uh, then you take those gags and sort them up in for each strip. And so I started working on about, you know, I think it was about 83, 84, originally writing gags for Beetle Bailey and trying to help him a little bit with the Miss Buxley problem, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He was famous Miss Buxley problem. Yeah. He was attacked for being a sexist. And he said, maybe, you know, you're a young guy. You're liberated, right? You got a young wife. Maybe you can figure this out. I I examined it and I said, well, the first problem is is Miss Buxley hardly ever talks. She truly is a sex object. She walks through the room and the general falls out of his chair. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an old fashioned sense of humor, but it's not really playing so well these days mm-hmm. and you know, we actually did a book about the whole thing that you know i still have boxes in my garage and we, we tried to sell it to one of the book chains and the woman buyers said forget it you know <laughs> some of those things are pretty funny if you go back and look at it but oh it's, sure yeah you know, it's politically incorrect nowadays well they're from another era but you know another set of ideas and certainly, you know, times have thankfully have changed. But uh, but yeah, you know, it's it was part of that world. And and what's interesting is the, the issues that rose up in part in response to it. So and how you guys dealt with it. So, yeah, well, because Miss Buxley's still an important part of the strip. Yeah. And I think that that readers like her. And uh, so I started writing gags where sometimes she got the punchline. She got the last laugh on the general. And uh, slowly, subtly, we stopped doing, you know, the general's eyes bugging out or oogling her and drooling and stuff like that you know and now we, we've uh, sort of gotten to the point where she and beetle are kind of special friends and uh-huh. uh, they do things together although that's we, we don't take it too far but uh but it, you know you, you come up with new combinations that one of the things that's great about beetle bailey it probably has more characters than any other syndicated comic strip so you can you can combine obviously beetle and sarge and then you got sarge and lieutenant fuzz and then you've got lieutenant fuzz and lieutenant flap and then you've got the general and captain scabbard and the secretaries in his office and and sergeant otto and you know <laughs> there's just so many and you just put those two characters two or three characters together and just let the sparks fly see what happens and that's kind of the way that i i won't say the strip writes itself because it's not that easy but um the hardest thing in beetle bailey is to come up with something we haven't done before yeah after all these years right you know it's just so many times my my brother greg will say yeah we already did that and we did that last week or you know, <laughs> well this is different we do we did it with a cell phone and it's a different you know or um and, you know it's uh and you're also stuck in between repetitive gags that people like you know uh-huh. yeah it's like you know in peanuts you've got charlie brown and and lucy pulling the football away from him and he used to do that every year sure and we've got recurring gags like sarge hanging off the tree on the edge of the cliff or cookie sitting on top of the of the mess hall sulking or beetles sleeping under the tree or cookies meatballs or um and there's always some new twist on that or some different way to to take it uh but it's it can get tough sometimes in high and lois we have situations like trixie sitting in the sunbeam right it's never like it's never laugh out loud funny it's cute and you know it's observational humor it's it's like this woman wrote one time i feel like you've been looking in the window of my house this kind of stuff (laughs) happens in our family every single day and uh, i know when bill Keane died family circus and you know he was a good friend of us of ours and and his son jeff 
who's continuing the strip, is also a good friend. And what Bill Keene taught me is you don't have to be laugh out loud funny every single day. You can be um, heartwarming. You can pull the heartstrings. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I just wrote a high lowest gag. It's on the drawing board, so it wouldn't run until probably in the fall. But, uh, you know, Chance Brown, who's Dick Brown's son, who's drawn the strip for many years, um, mm-hmm. is a really talented blues guitarist. So I like to do things that have guitars in them. Uh-huh. So they're in a chip is, is also in a band and, and they're in a guitar store and high says oh i used to have a guitar just like that one when i was your age and the guy that runs the guitar store says man those are super rare man if you still had that it would be worth a fortune and they're walking out to the car and chip said so what did you do with that guitar and chip says i i sold it to buy an engagement engagement ring for your mother uh-huh. <laughs> and that's like oh you know isn't that yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. really funny but i like those kind of gags sure yeah it's great well and that it is the kind of thing that you read and that that definitely touches your heartstrings makes you think about your own life and and what and i think that is always one of the the things about high and low is it, it was just one of those families that you found people to relate to you know growing up as a kid i related to chip uh you know as a teenager and uh and you, and there's a lightness to high and lowest that I think makes it really accessible to so many people uh, yeah. that I really enjoyed. And it's interesting. I always found it interesting to me personally that I always thought th- that the more there was a Mort Walker style, a visual style. And I thought that Dick Brown really sort of took his own approach, but then took stuff from your dad and put those styles together to create a style that was very much in the same mold, you know, of, uh, it's just like a whole look, you know, to the comics that, uh, came from Mort Walker's imagination. Yeah. Uh, in well, a I did a book, um, also in the 1980s with Holt, <clears throat> the best of high and Lois. And in that book, I published some of the early sketches by both Dick and Mort. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. See, you know, Dick at that point was working for Johnstone and Cushing, which was an advertising uh, art agency. And he was doing ads for, you know, Chiquita Banana, the Campbell Soup Kids and stuff like that. And so he had this kind of a little bit more angular kind of modern advertising style. And then, of course, my father with all the, the, you know, I think R.C. Harvey calls it like balloon like, you know, anatomy or whatever. (laughs) Everything's round and lots of rounds are all round. Bigfoot classic Connecticut school we call it and you can see their original and then somehow they just blended that together and Dick kind of adapted his style to Mort's but kind of eventually it got rounder you know in the beginning it was a little more angular uh it kind of reached its peak I think in the 60s in terms of the classic brown era and and he used to do a strip for the boy's life called the Tracy twins oh yeah I used to love that yeah and uh, and then when Chan- Dick passed away in 89 and then Chance started drawing it full time, he'd been helping his dad. And Chance was always like, I'm just trying to channel my dad, you know, trying to like, how, how would Dick do this? And he had all this reference material and everything. And then probably about eight years ago, maybe even a little longer, um, Chance brought in an, an assistant, Eric Reeves, who used to work for Jim Davis on Garfield. And mm-hmm. did a lot of product. I mean, Eric can draw any cartoon character. You know, <laughs> he can draw Snoopy. And it looks exactly like Snoopy. And he can draw the princess from Frozen and superheroes and everything. So he's a master at, you know, sort of mimicking styles. Uh-huh. So Eric took over, a, a, you know, bit by bit. He started helping Chance originally, but now does all the artwork on High and Lois. And he does everything digitally now. It's all done on a, I think it's a Wacom tablet. Uh Um, Cintiq or. Yeah. Uh And uh, at first it, it, it was a different look. I mean, it was so clean. It would, you know, almost looked like machine made or something, but he's just gotten really good at drawing the characters. He draws a beautiful Lois. I mean, he's got, you know, he, he puts her in contemporary clothes and um, I think he's just doing a great job with it. And he studies Dick's work all the time, too. In fact, occasionally he'll just do a swipe, you know, right out of some panel that Dick did 
back in the mid 60s. That's, you know, he just redoes it, you know, because he has so much respect for Dick's work. I mean, my three favorite cartoonists of all time are Dick Brown, Billy DeBeck and Robert Crumb. Ah, all three. That's an interesting group. Yeah, but they're all like scratchy pen and ink guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Oh, Billy DeBeck, for sure. You know, I just had John Rose on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we talked a little bit about Billy DeBeck. Yeah, I, I, and uh, John had done a, an anniversary drawing or, or, or of, for uh, Snuffy Smith in the style of Billy DeBeck and one in the style of Fred Laswell and one in his own style. It was kind of interesting, but I love those, those uh, that, as you said, that scratchy line, you know, pen and ink, man, that's that's yeah. beautiful stuff and there's a grit to it you know uh yeah. no, I, I did an exhibit back in actually when the, the museum first moved lucy caswell in the early 90s called up and said so we're going to do an exhibit here at the cartoon research library which is what the was forerunner of the billy ireland on the 75 years of barney google and snuffy smith and I was wondering if you'd write an essay for the catalog. I said, sure, great. I love the, the back. It's the one exhibit I never got around to doing at the old museum. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, no, you forget about a catalog. You should do a whole book. So we ended up doing a book, co-published it with Kitchen Sink and Ohio State University Press. And 75 years of Barney Google and Snuffy Smith. And uh, the real joy of that was I got to know fred laswell very well oh you did and he said he said i don't know what you want from me you got to come down here to tampa and spend a couple of days you know tell your daddy you need to do this and i said well my dad's got nothing to do with it so i flew down and i spent three or four days with fred laswell i gained about 13 pounds <laughs> and that guy is was really one of my favorite cartoonists he was so he was constantly telling jokes and but he was a bright guy. I mean, he, you know, he was one of the first cartoonists to use computer lettering. Um, yes. He, he has, he had patents on, on like uh, harvesting machines and developed some kind of a, a form of Braille. And, you know, so he was a really bright guy, but he was just this goofy hillbilly, you know. And, and uh, that's what John Rose told me about him was, was exactly that, that, that one of the reasons Billy DeBeck hired him was because he came from that kind of rural background and Billy DeBeck was an urban guy. And so yeah. he didn't feel like he had the background to do Snuffy Smith. And so he brought on Fred Laswell. Yeah. And so, did I mean, this is way off topic, but I guess, did you have any chance to talk to Fred Laswell about Billy DeBeck at all and what oh, he was absolutely. Yeah, he has some great stories. I mean, it actually was a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, circumstantial in that. So Billy DeBeck had a big kind of a, a mansion in Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay area. Uh, you know, that's where he would spend his winters. And then he had a place on, in New York City, I think it was on Riverside Drive or something. He was, you know, probably one of the richest cartoonists in the country back in the late 20s or early 30s mm-hmm. and he was at a golf tournament and he saw this sign for the golf tournament that was hand lettered he said wow this who, who did this he said ah, some kid you know he's like 19 years old and you know fred grew up on a as he used to say like a dirt farm in florida <laughs> so he really was a kind of a you know a, a local town guy and DeBeck says, well, find out who this kid is and send him over. I might, he might be able to help me with the lettering. And this was quite a bit before Snuffy Smith kind of uh-huh. took over. And so Fred became DeBeck's assistant. And he, he used to come and work with him at the place in Tampa. And then he would come with him to New York City. And, you know, DeBeck would teach him how to, what silverware to use and <laughs> dress properly and Fred remembers going to a Yankee game with Babe Ruth's daughter and sitting in the box. Oh, wow. Seeing Babe Ruth play in Yankee Stadium. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and so he had great stories about all that stuff. And, you know, and I can't even do justice to the stories because Fred was a great storyteller. Okay. Did that, did, do you see what I mean there? Brian is, Brian's known everybody in the world of comics in the last 50 years or so. And, and there's, he's got so much stuff and boy, oh boy, I hope that wet your whistle for the next episode because there's more to come and there's great, more great stories along those lines. And, uh, just thinking about that, you know, Fred Laswell and Billy DeBeck, and it was great to talk to John Rose. 
about all of this and and now to hear a little bit more from brian it's just oh man all this cartooning lore i just eat it up <laughs> what, 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 what kind of what kind of life do i have right i mean no oh, really seriously i'm here in a closet recording <laughs> recording speaking to myself into a microphone and and talking about comics and uh, uh um i can't this stuff this is the stuff that gets me going right <laughs> God, you know, you think you could come up with something more exciting, uh, you know, for your life, pal, but no. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you're looking forward to the next one, and I will, listen, I am going to try to get it out, I'm, I'm going to try to sit down later today and edit out the, the ums and ohs from the next episode and get it to you, like, very quickly, because I've got other stuff i got to get back to work to do, so... Uh, let, let's do that. Okay. And, um, so, you know, follow me on Instagram. Okay. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Grogan Jeff. If I can remember the right gosh, darn name, G R O G A N G E O F F. Yes. I am on Instagram. I am really no place else. <laughs> That's the only place. So you can find me there on Instagram and, uh, every now and again, you'll find me posting something. I haven't been posting on it too much lately, but uh, you know, there it is. Uh, you can also follow me on Patreon, of course, uh, patreon.com Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. If you want to throw a little support this podcast's way, it is greatly appreciated. So, uh, anything, any amount is very, very helpful. And I thank you very much in advance. So that will do it for this time. I'm going to keep it short. Uh, and hopefully we will get that next episode out to you very quickly. we got a 70th anniversary coming up, right, for both Beetle Bailey, right, and and also for someone else uh, who I think we all know and love, and that is uh, Charles Schultz and Peanuts. There was a 70th anniversary in October, and we are looking forward to that, and I hope to have a couple of special guests on here to talk some about the great Charles Schultz and Peanuts once again. In the meantime, be well, be safe, wear your mask, stay, stay, you know, do your social distancing thing and be, be happy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as always, thanks for listening. Mm